Well, good morning. Uh, let's get started with a word of prayer, please. Our great God, we do come before you this morning with great thankfulness in our hearts, uh, not only for the season that we're enjoying, but Lord, because we have the privilege to come together as the body of Christ. Thank you for these dear saints who desire to hear from your word. Pray that this morning by your spirit, you'll illumine our minds and show us the truth. Help us to understand correctly what is written in the book of Daniel. Lord, uh, help us to incorporate it into our thinking that we might approach the world in which we live with a right perspective and with an understanding that leans on the word of God as opposed to the theories of men. And so, Lord, uh, thank you for the scriptures. Pray that you would use them this morning to make us more like Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this is week number 27 in our study of the book of Daniel, and we continue to crawl through the book. Uh, last week we began chapter 8, and you'll remember a few things about this, that this is the second vision that Daniel has during the reign of King Belshazzar. Uh, it's two years subsequent to the one that we saw in chapter 7. So it's in the third year of Belshazzar. And uh, Daniel sees himself in this vision in the citadel in the city of Susa, which is in the Elam province. And just to the west of that city is the Ulai River. And so Daniel describes all these things. We know through archaeology that we actually have found that city. It was built on four mounds, and indeed it had a citadel. They, find, they have found the remains of that, and there is a river just to the west of it. It isn't called the Ulai anymore, but nevertheless it's there. Um, the, for some reason, the New American Standard uses the term canal, but that in my mind means something that man dug and flowed water through. I mean, but that's not what this is. This is a natural river. Um, that is west of the Tigris and the Euphrates, which are the great rivers of that area. But nevertheless, it's a river that is there, and it'll come into play a little bit during uh, this chapter as uh, men speak to Daniel. Actually, angels, I believe, speak to Daniel. And in this vision, we saw that there are two animals. The first is... Um, a ram that comes up with two horns on its head, one longer than the other, um, but yet they're both long horns. And we're told down in verse 20 that this ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. And so we've talked about this. That was in the previous chapter in seven. That was the second animal. It was represented by a bear that had one side humped up. And those two longhorns represent, I believe, the kings of Media and Persia, uh, the one out of Media being Cyaxares II, the one out of uh, Persia being Cyrus. They were co-kings when the uh, Babylonian kingdom first fell, and then Cyaxares died, and um, Cyrus took over basically both thrones. And from there on, the Persians pretty much ruled as opposed to the, the, those out of Media. 
And this verse to me fits perfectly because it says the second one came up after the first one. Um, and that's exactly the truth. Cyaxares was older than Cyrus, a good bit older than Cyrus, and so Cyrus came up after Cyaxares. So to me, that verse is just another confirmation of the interpretation we had at the end of chapter five and beginning of six, where we talked about who was Darius. And I believe he was Cyaxares, the second out of the Median dynasty. So um, this ram magnifies himself greatly because he's budding, you remember, to the north, to the south, and to the west, to the east or mountains, and there's nobody there. Um, and so because no one could stand before him, he greatly magnified himself, which we know that's what the Persians did, just like any dynasty would do. Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing um, when the Babylonians were in power. And so as he's magnifying himself, the second animal, which um, is a goat, a male goat, um, coming from the west, and we talked about that, that the kingdom of Greece certainly began to the west of that of Persia. And he's running so fast that it looks like he's not even touching the ground. And like we saw back in chapter 7, where the leopard had four wings, this speaks to the speed of which the Grecian kingdom expanded under Alexander the Great. Um, you know, very rapidly uh, in less than 20 years, just a little more than 10 really for most of it, uh, Alexander the Great conquered all that he was going to conquer. And so this, um, this goat has a conspicuous horn, he's a unicorn, he only has one big horn in the center of his head, and we're told that represents the first king, uh, who would be Alexander the Great. And then as soon as he begins to magnify himself, because he throws the ram to the ground, breaks his horn, shatters his horns, tramples on him, meaning he kills the kings of Persia, which he did, and then he begins to magnify himself. But as soon as he does that, then the single horn on the goat is broken. That's Alexander's uh, untimely death at an early age. And then out of that came four um, smaller horns that scattered to the four winds of the earth, north, south, east, and west. And that's kind of where we left it last week. We know that Alexander the Great died, don't know exactly why he died, uh, there are a lot of different theories about that. But nevertheless, he died at a young age just after having captured all that he did capture while he was living in Persia. Um, so Alexander's gone and four new kings come up. And we've looked at this in history once before. People use different names for some of these. And I gave you um, different names than I've given you before. The two strongest kingdoms, clearly from history, are the Ptolemaic out of Egypt and the Seleucid, which are really out of Syria and that in the Persia area. And then you've got Macedon, um, which would have been where Alexander's kingdom started. He was Alexander the Great of Macedon. So that's where he started his kingdom. And then you have, this one is given different names, but I, put it down this time as the Adelaide dynasty of the kingdom of Pergamon. Neither one of those are 
as significant in history as the Seleucids and the Ptolemaics. They, they were clearly the two stronger kingdoms. But then we'll read beginning in verse 9 this morning is where we'll pick up and read down through verse 12 of Daniel chapter 8. So Daniel 8, 12, they're the, sorry, 8, 9, there the scripture reads, out of one of these came forth a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host of the, and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host and it removed the regular sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Okay, now I'll readily admit some of these verses can be a little difficult, um, but we'll try and make it simple, okay? as we walk through them. The first thing to notice is that out of one of them came a small horn. And then the them there are the four kingdoms that came out of Alexander the Great's kingdom. Because that's what's just been mentioned in the previous verse, that um, four conspicuous horns came toward the four winds of heaven out of one of them. So out of one of these Grecian kingdoms. So that puts some dates on things for us um, because we know when this begins to happen and where it was in history. And so comes a, a small horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. So this is similar to what we saw in chapter four. Remember the fourth beast had 10 horns and then there was a small horn that came up that was exceedingly large a little bit later. So the same thing is happening here. And all it means is that a king is coronated and during his reign, he becomes very great. And so he comes up small um, with a coronation ceremony. Maybe he's a, just a child and then he grows exceedingly great. And that's what happens here with this particular um, it says horn, but we know that horns represent kings. So we're talking about a king that came out of one of the four kingdoms of, of Alexander the Great. The question is, which one? Because the scripture does not tell us which one. But go ahead. Right. Yeah, that would be the same ones. Uh, Egypt would be Ptolemaic. Right. Syria would be Seleucid. Um, Turkey would be um, uh, the Attila dynasty. And then Greece would be um, the first one, which I can't remember. Yeah, the Macedonian. And this was, uh, he was 32 when he died. That's right. And the Maccabees came later, but, um, and we'll actually talk about the Maccabees um, as we talk about this king 
um, because it's the Maccabees that ultimately fight against him. And by the way, if you want to read some of that, it is not anti-Christian to read the book written by the Maccabees, okay? It's okay. It's the Apocrypha, it's not scripture, but there's no problem in reading it. You can read it, it's just historical. Um, and it gives some pretty good history, um, especially when the way I interpret what's getting ready to happen here. Um, I think it all meshes together um, with the Maccabees actually. And so, but in scripture, we're not told which one of those kingdoms this kingdom king comes out of. It's not given. And so we look at what he did and what happened in history and you can begin to understand some things. But we'll get to that later. Um, this term, the beautiful land. Now I know, you know, you're a Christian, you've read the Bible, you know that it, uh, it's centered around Palestine and the city of Jerusalem. I mean, that's where most everything that God does in scripture happens um, in that general region. And so you immediately say, well, it's the beautiful land has to be Palestine. Um, and I agree with that, that it is Palestine. But the question is, is there any basis in scripture to know that this land called the beautiful land is indeed Palestine and that the city that would be there would be Jerusalem? Well, we'll look at a couple of things um, because scripture alludes to it but doesn't specifically say it and probably the one of the best places is psalm 48 uh, the opening verses of psalm 48 kind of speak to this um, is one of the places well first let me show you i mean you can certainly turn your finger there this term is used two other times in the book of daniel he uses it in chapter 11 down in verse 16, um, you'll notice he said, but one who comes against him will do as he pleases, sounds very similar, will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. So he's not, he's not coming to Palestine to treat it well, he's coming to Palestine to treat it badly. This, in this particular vision, and we'll, we'll get to this later. But then down in the same chapter in verse 41, just wanna show you Daniel uses this term multiple times, so it's worth trying to figure it out. Um, talking again about this one particular king, he will also enter the beautiful land and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Now we, we talked about all three of those, Moab, Edom, and the sons of Ammon when we were looking at Ezekiel, seeing that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed them. So this is clearly not talking about him, it's talking about sometime later. We'll, we'll get to all that and try and put it together. But Daniel uses this term multiple times. And so it's worth a little effort to try and confirm what it is. So in Psalm 48, the first few verses there, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. 
beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. Okay, so this land here that is called beautiful in elevation, we do know that Jerusalem, um, as you go to it, is up in elevation, not down. Uh, that's always been true. But here he equates the beautiful with Mount Zion, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And he also says something very unique here. God is in her palaces. Now, if you look at all of scripture, the only place where God is spoken of literally dwelling like in a palace or in a temple is first in the desert when they were traveling about with the tabernacle, which David ultimately moved to the city of Jerusalem, still with the presence of God in it. And then Solomon built the temple and God moved from the tabernacle into the Holy of Holies in the temple. And then later he left there. And then um, after that temple is destroyed and Zerubbabel rebuilds um, a temple, certainly not a, equivalent to the original one, and then God dwells in the temple again, but only, I mean, that's in Jerusalem. And, that's the, and then, you know, you go through all the annual, annals of history and God is not spoken of as literally dwelling anywhere until you got to the book of Ezekiel that we studied. And you'll remember that um, Jesus Christ sits on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And then the temple is where God himself, remember entering from the east gate and going into the temple, into the Holy of Holies himself, into the holy place and the Holy of Holies, where the Zadokian um, priests come near to him. Remember all that? Um, that's the only other place, but that's in the Millennial Kingdom. And again, it's not, the temple is not in Jerusalem, it's just outside of Jerusalem, but Jesus Christ sits on the throne in Jerusalem. So when you start talking about God being in palaces and literally dwelling in houses, the only place that could be would be Jerusalem or in, in Palestine. There's no other place in scripture given. And here it is called beautiful in elevation. So some not perfect meshing, but certainly an indication that this land that, um, that Daniel calls the beautiful land is indeed Palestine itself. Just putting several things together. And when, we'll, when we look at history, and we will, um, and compare it to what is said here it takes place in Palestine. And that's the center of the activity. So <coughs> I believe this beautiful land is the, is the Palestinian area. It's still called Palestinian area today. And it houses Jerusalem, which there's no temple today, but apparently there will be in the future as we get into additional things that are said in this verse. So. Um, and, and this is often, through this particular passage, this is true. You can get intimations of what it is. You can get hints of what it is from Scripture. But there is not perfect meshing. And so people disagree on what this means. 
in what's being spoken of here. Um, I think once you look at, at the, um, the dynasties that came out of the Grecian dynasty, it becomes pretty clear what is being spoken of here, but people disagree with me. And a lot of people see chapter 7 and chapter 8 as speaking about the same thing. I, I don't know how you get there because we're explicitly told um, that in chapter 7 is the fourth beast. And here we're told that it's the Grecian kingdom and the Medo-Persian kingdoms that are being spoken of. And that's not the fourth one because the fourth one came after those because it was the last one. So I, I don't know how people get there, but we're told here that it's the second and third kingdoms. I, I think explicitly. So, but people disagree with me. And, and that's okay. <laughs> they, they have the right to be wrong. But <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, you try not to be dogmatic about these things, but I mean, I think they become fairly apparent what they mean. Okay, then verse 10, which is at best a difficult verse. Um, it, meaning the king, the small horn, it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. So people have all kinds of theories about this. You know, there are people who would say, oh, this is speaking of Satan when he was thrown down and he took a third of the angels with him. And, um, you know, this is the Grecian kingdom. So how do you get there from that? I mean, we're explicitly told that it's Greece. And so I don't know how you make that connection, but people do. Um, and they say they're talking about something that happened long ago. And I don't think so. I think we're talking about the Grecian kingdom. Context is important. And so we're told explicitly that this king is out of the Grecian kingdoms, one of the four. And so this isn't Satan. This isn't Lucifer. This isn't talking about angels falling. Um, so what is it talking about? Because it does talk about the host of heaven. And most of the time in scripture, when you find the host of heaven, you also find the sun and the moon. And it is talking about the literal stars. But here, I don't think it is. I think it's figurative. Well, how do you know when to change that? Context is important. That's how you know. Because we're told this is the Grecian kingdom. All right, but there are a few other things in scripture. Is there a place in scripture where the Jews are called the stars? Or is there a place where they're called the host of heaven? That would be a good question to begin to ask. And again, there's not perfect meshing here, but you'll remember some of these things that I want to point to out of scripture. We looked at them a long time ago when we were talking about the land and what was God's plan for the land and who did he give it to and whatever happened through the years and all of that. Well, it began way back in Genesis chapter 15. So I wanna turn there for a second and just look at some of these promises that were given to Abraham before even his name was changed to Abraham. So in Genesis 15, and again, there, this will not be, oh, Scripture says explicitly who this is. It's just not there. 
Um, but context is important, and these, ver these chapters and verses are important. So in, in Genesis 15, beginning in verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have not given me offspring, one born in my house is my heir. And that was true at this time. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So your descendants shall be. Now he doesn't call his descendants stars, right? He just says, Look at the stars, and that's how many descendants you're going to have. But he does relate his descendants to the stars. All right, so you go, okay, that's pretty loose. So you look down in chapter 22 of Genesis. And like I said, this will not be like I like it, which is fast and hard and perfectly fit together, but I think it gives us enough. So in Genesis 22, verse 15, then the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, behold, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, and this thing was offering his son Isaac, willing to kill his son Isaac, believing that God could resurrect him. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of, of the heavens and as the sand on which is the sea, seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. So clearly indicating how many descendants Abram is going to have, Abraham at this point is going to have, but not calling them stars again, but comparing them to the stars. So when the stars of heaven fall in Daniel, what's being said? Well, you keep looking and you eventually get to Exodus, and we walk through all of this. Exodus chapter 12, and this is as they um, come out of Egypt, is the, what's being spoken of here. Exodus 12, verse 41. And at the end of 430 years, we know that's how long they were in Egypt, 430. 30 years to the very day, I love that, because that's how the way I believe that Jesus Christ came, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. All the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That is the Jewish people leaving, and they're called the host of the Lord. You could easily say the host of heaven, because the Lord dwells in heaven. So I think, yes, there is a place where the Jews are called the host of the Lord. So you go back over to Daniel chapter 8, and you read it again, and you say, could this possibly be indicating the Jewish people? Is, is that a possibility? Is that specifically what he's talking about here when he says, 
it, the horn, grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth that even trampled them down. Could that indicate that this horn goes into Palestine and kills some of the Jewish people, tramples them down, causes them to fall to the earth, which would be death? Is that what this is talking about? Could that be what this is talking about? And I think the answer there is yes. Well, why does he use this great hyperbole and this high language to speak of what's happening? Why couldn't he just say he went into Palestine and killed some of the uh, descendants of Abraham? That would have been a lot easier, right? But that's not the way scripture works, especially apocalyptic scripture doesn't work that way. It's often hyperbole. But I think the reason that he uses that language is what's given in the next verse. And in the next verse, after, after verse 10, he says, it, meaning the king, even magnum, magnified in itself to be equal with the commander of the host. Okay, now, your scripture probably has a capital C there, right? So the interpreters are putting their understanding into it for you. That often happens when you have interpretations that they decide when the letter's to be capitalized and when it's not. It's not so good, okay, because that is the translators putting in their understanding of Scripture instead of just translating it for you. But it's okay, because I would agree with them that the commander of the host, certainly of heaven, is God himself. And so this commander of the host is God. And so this king magnifies himself to be equal to God. Now this is very similar to what we saw in the fourth kingdom in chapter 7 where the small horn that grew exceedingly large blasphemed against God, calling himself God, literally. And we see over in Revelation that the, the Antichrist does the same thing, calls people to worship him even um, falsifies death and resurrection so that people will worship him. And all along you've got the, the false prophet whipping people into a frenzy to worship him. So this is this horn, this king that came out of the four Grecian kingdoms magnifying himself and to be equal with God and trampling down the Jewish people is what I believe all this means. And it's not given specifically in scripture, but again, when we get to look at who I believe this is speaking of, a historical character that came out of the Seleucid Empire, it will be clear that that is what is being talked about here. Go ahead. I have a question about Sure. So do I. I think it means the same thing. I think he's talking about the people of God, the host of heaven and the stars being alluded to in what he said to Abraham, your sons will be as the stars. Um, you know, you never know I mean, this is a vision given to Daniel 
that he literally sees, it's, it's not a, you know, that he literally visions, he sees it in his vision, he communicates with people in the vision, and you don't know why God paints it the way he does. This is a vision from God to Daniel to indicate, he says it in here, what will happen in many days. And so he doesn't just give it to you, one, two, three, oh, this is talking about the descendants of Abraham and what happens to them. Because remember, when Daniel is getting this vision, Daniel is in Babylon. He's been there for 60-something years. And he's old. And the Jewish people are not intact. They're all in captivity in Babylon. There's no one in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is desolate when he's having this vision. And it's been that way for 50 years, 60 years. Uh, the temple was destroyed later, so 50 years, when he has this vision. And so this makes no sense to him at all, because we're in captivity in Babylon. Persia won't come for another 10 years. And so he uses this language to indicate who he's talking about, as opposed to saying the descendants of Abraham. By the way, 10 tribes which were destroyed and taken to Assyria, never to be heard of it from again. We're only talking about Judah and some of the Levites and a few of the Benjamites who actually got taken to Babylon. The other 10 are just totally gone. And so this doesn't make a lot of sense to a, a Jewish man who's been in captivity his whole life. Good, Andy. From Abraham, right, right, right. And, and I think it's, it's helpful the way he ends this, because he says, it does not say in the offspring referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ, and then he goes into the 430 years. But at the end of that narrative, he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So in many ways, to sharpen even what you said is, the object of all of this satanic attack is on Christ and Christ's people. And at that time, where was Christ going to come from? Yeah. The Jewish people. Right. Right. He didn't know. You don't know who the elect are. You just know at this point they're deposited in Israel as a 
Yeah, and if you take all that and you marry it to Revelation 11, where it sweeps through history and says one came from the woman, the woman being the Jewish people, and Satan stood with his mouth open to devour him, yet he did not. That's all in Revelation chapter 11. Then it sweeps to the end of the age where Satan's thrown down to the earth and he's enraged because he couldn't get Christ, he couldn't get the Jews, and so he's going to go after the Christians, the, the host of God's people. Then, then you take all that and you run into Romans chapter 4 where it talks about the, the streams of people who come from Abraham, talking about Jews who don't believe, Jews who do believe, and then non-Jews who do and don't believe. All these streams, but the ones that come from Abraham, the true offspring of Abraham, are the Jews and the non-Jews who do believe, given explicitly in Romans chapter 4. The host of heaven. Right, that's... That's who we're talking about here, I believe. And, and yeah, you got to, you know, we've said this before. Comprehensive view is needed to put all these things together and to understand what's being written here, not just go into a slice and pull this out and say this is apocalyptic. There's no way you can understand what's being spoken of here. And so we just give up. There's no reason to do that. Because, uh, and again, um, we'll talk about Antiochus Epiphanes out of the Seleucid Empire that came at the end of the Seleucid Empire and ultimately was defeated by the Maccabees and what he did in Jerusalem and to the Jewish people will fit very well with what is given here in chapter 8. Right. Yeah, and you could name them through history who they were. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was one of them. And then we'll see that Antiochus Epiphanes was certainly one of them. Then you'll later see the, the Romans tear down Jerusalem. And then you'll see, um, even up until modern times, when Hitler came and tried to wipe out the Jewish people again. I mean, there have been these attacks by Satan through human beings throughout all of history, and there will be at the end. Yeah, and you, you remember who um, the central powers were, not only Germany, but Austria, and who else? The Ottoman Empire that was in control of this area that we're talking about now during that world war. And so those three came together to try and wipe out the Jewish people. Almost succeeded, but didn't succeed. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs>
So you don't get as far as I ever want to get, right? But um, so I believe he uses this figurative high language because he is talking about the commander who is in heaven. And these are his people. And so he uses stars and beautiful land and the commander and this horn who exalts himself to be equal with the commander. It's this high hyperbole language that's being used, but it came out of the Grecian Empire. He also says that. And so when you read the context, you can't take this to just where you, you want to take it to. You have to take it to the Grecian empires because it is explicitly given that that's who we're talking about. I mean, so you can't, you can't go to modern day, you can't go to ancient history, you have to go to the middle part there, after Alexander the Great. So um, that's what I see this as, that's what um, we'll talk about. Now, um, notice that it says, I'm, just, I'm gonna finish here, in verse 12, oh, sorry, eight, and I'm in verse 11 that he magnified himself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifices from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. The sanctuary is that of the commander of hosts. The sacrifices are those commanded in the Mosaic law to be given in the temple. And that's what he puts an end to. And you remember we saw this before. Um, not in Daniel chapter 7, but over in Daniel chapter 9, there toward the end of it, in verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of a week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. Those are the offerings that the Jewish people will be offering according to the Mosaic law in the temple. So even here, out of the Grecian kingdom, there's a put an end to the sacrifices. So when in history were the Jews sacrificing and someone in and forcibly caused them to stop? That didn't happen a whole lot of times. But it did happen under the Seleucid Empire. And so we'll talk about that. So, so there's hints all through here of who this is and when it was. Because the Jews weren't sacrificing and then forcibly were stopped very many times in history. It only has happened a couple of times. And it will happen, I believe chapter 9 speaks to the end of the age, but it also happens here in chapter 8. Right. You, don't, you didn't see this in chapter 7. He wanted that, um, the fourth beast wanted to make alterations to time and laws, which would have been um, uh, religious laws. But here we see an actual stopping of the sacrifices. So it has to be somewhere in history. It has to be somebody that we can point to. Because again, it hasn't happened many times. And, I mean, we're today in a stoppage of the sacrifices all the way from 70 A.D. till today. There have been no Jewish sacrifices 
like these, according to the Mosaic law. Why? Because there's no temple, there's no altar, and there's no ashes of the brown heifer from last year that we can find to start them, because that's required every year. But there will be. Yes. What did I say, brown? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but they will. Those ashes are somewhere. It's just a matter of where. So, um, so I want to come back and talk about verse 11 next time. Um, notice down in verse 25, and I'll finish with this. Because you go, who is this commander, right? Uh, is it given? Well, this is in the, the interpretation of this vision given later. I think it's verse 25. Yeah, um, you destroy many heroities. Yeah, okay. And through his shrewdness, and we'll talk about what this is. I think we know exactly what this shrewdness is. He will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. I think we can point to who he's talking about. And he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. And then here it is. He will even oppose the prince of princes. Now, who's the prince of princes? Jesus Christ. Just like in Revelation, he's given as the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the prince of princes. We saw him as the prince in Ezekiel. Well, here, so when you're interpreting, when God is interpreting who the commander of the host is, he later says he's the prince of princes. It's Jesus Christ who's the commander of the host. So that's given by God to Daniel in the interpretation. So we don't have to wonder about some of these things because they're given in the interpretation, just like that this is the Grecian kingdom is given in the interpretation by God. I think he knows what he was showing Daniel. And it's not something far-fetched and outrageous that came out of the Grecian kingdom. So we'll come back here. This is, this is granted, a difficult passage right through here. And you have to put some things together. And you have to think about it. And, but always, always in Scripture, context is important. And when you're told that it came out of the Grecian kingdom, then it came out of the Grecian kingdom. Sure. But there are also a thousand vibrations exactly like that one that have taken place over the course of time. Mm -hmm. Satan has, has attempted to, to go to war in various ways with the prince and his people. Right. So Remember what Christ, um, when he divides the sheep from the goats, what does he say? When you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. So when anybody is against the people of God, they're against Jesus Christ himself. I mean, he's the one that said that. And they will be divided. And um, there is a judgment coming. So, I mean... You, Me, when he was killing Jew, I mean, uh, Christians. So, I mean, it, it, 
Yeah, and so comprehensive view is important. Context is important. And trying to understand is important. Because there is a reason we're given these things. Is so we will not be caught unaware. So we'll continue to walk through this, try and put the pieces together. I appreciate your time this morning.